Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Gary Kent. I'm sure you have heard of a man by the name of Harry Truman. And uh, this afternoon I want to share with you a little of the story of Harry Truman. Now when I mention the name Harry Truman, I'm sure most of you say, yeah, I've heard about Harry Truman. I know about the President of the United States of America, the 33rd President of the United States of America who was president during a a very important time of the history of the United States and a man who made an impression not just upon America and the Western world but who made an impression upon us right here in this country, Australia. But friends, that's not the Harry Truman that I'm referring to today. The Harry Truman that I'm referring to today is the man who fought the mountain. Let me tell you his story. Harry Truman was born in Virginia, West Virginia, in in 1896. And in the year 1926, he gathered his small family and he moved to Spirit Lake in the foothills of Mount St. Helens. And there he began a business and his business grew. It was very successful. To begin with, he began selling small goods to tourists who came through camping in the area and who needed food and supplies. He opened a a petrol station over there called a gas station. But then he opened Mount St. Helens Lodge, which became an uh, iconic location, a venue there in the foothills of Mount St. Helens. Everybody in the district knew about this particular uh, hotel, we'd call it today, that he built there. And so Harry Truman became a well-known personality or identity right throughout this region. Everybody in the area had heard of Harry Truman. And he built his lodge right on the shores of Spirit Lake. In fact, that is his lodge over there, right at the foothills of Mount St. Helens on the banks or the shores of Spirit Lake. It became a very popular place. And Harry Truman knew everything about Mount St. Helens. There wasn't any information or knowledge. He was the man of the mountain. He knew that mountain so wonderfully well. He'd studied it. He'd traveled right across it, all around it. He knew the foothills, the forests, and the lakes. The man who knew everything about Mount St. Helens. Well, in March, what did I say, sorry? Oh, okay. Well, he thought he did. He thought he did. In March 1980, the first volcanic eruptions for many, many years began on Mount St. Helens. And of course, people wanted to know, well, what does this mean? What are the implications for us who live in the area, for tourists who are traveling through the area? 
Everybody wanted to know. And who better to ask than Harry Truman, the man who knew the mountain. And people began to say, look, these eruptions are becoming more regular. They are becoming larger in size. And they are becoming, therefore, more dangerous. And, uh, of course, Harry Truman, who knew nearly everything about the mountain, Alistair, said, listen, nothing to worry about. Everything is under control. I know the mountain. You've got nothing to worry about. Well, these eruptions became larger and larger until everybody left. And the rangers came through the area and they called on the very few people who were left and said, listen, it's time to leave. And they knocked on the lodge door and uh, they said, Harry... Everybody must leave because the mountain, all the signs are telling us that this mountain is going to blow its top. This mountain is going to erupt. Come on, Harry, please, while there is still time, leave the mountain. Harry said, I will never leave the mountain. I know this mountain better than anyone. And he shook his fist at the mountain and he said, this mountain wouldn't dare do anything to me. And so after they did everything to try to try to persuade him, his last words were, I will fight this mountain. I'm never going to leave Mount St. Helens. And so the rangers had to leave without him. And that beautiful mountain, Mount St. Helens, began to erupt more and more, more, more eruptions. And then on this day, May 18, 1980, it blew its top. It erupted with a power 500 times greater than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Listen, friends, that blast, that blast of Mother Nature traveled at over five, just imagine this. You know, people thought, when I see it, when it happens, I'll just get out of the way. I will escape. That blast traveled at 500 kilometers an hour. It scorched more than 400 square kilometers of forest. Friends, the plume of ash, just to give you some indication as to the, the extent of this explosion. The ash rose to 30,000 meters into the sky. Listen, 520 million tons of ash were blown into the sky. To give you an idea as to, as to the, the reach, the extent of this explosion, that ash covered virtually halfway across the United States of America. That beautiful mountain, Mount St. Helens, that Harry knew so well, that mountain that he challenged, the mountain that he said he would fight, lost its top. And remember beautiful Spirit Lake? Well, all the timber from the forest round about were blown into Spirit Lake. 
And Harry Truman, the man who fought the mountain, tragically he lost his life. And to this day, his body has never been found. Harry Truman, who shook his fist at the mountain. Harry Truman, who challenged the mountain is buried so deeply under the ash and debris of Mount St. Helens that his body will never be found. The man who fought the mountain. Harry Truman isn't the first man to fight the mountain. People down through history have been fighting the mountain. I think of a man who lived 2,500 years ago. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story. One night Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he woke up the next morning and he couldn't remember his dream. So he called in the wisest men in the empire. The astrologers, the magicians, the witches people involved in the occult, people who claim to be in contact with the gods. He called them in and he said, okay guys, I had a dream last night and I've got a feeling that this dream was so important. I want you to tell me what my dream was and what it means. You remember what happened? They had been deceiving the king for so long. And so they tried it again. And they said, listen king, tell us your dream and then we will tell you what it means. And the king thought for a while and he said, okay, if you, you're absolutely certain, are you, that you can tell me what the dream means? Yes, we're in touch with the gods. Tell you what then. If you're in touch with the gods, not only tell me the meaning of my dream, but tell me what I dreamt. Ah, now they were in trouble. Because they weren't sure whether he could remember his dream or not. You know, it's easy. You tell me your dream, I'll give you an interpretation. But if I've got to tell you your dream, that's something else. And so, after a, a while, the men came and they said, uh, you're asking the most unreasonable thing. Nobody can tell you your dream. And so the king realized that these men who'd been living off the fat of the empire had been deceiving him all along. They weren't in touch with the gods. They had no more idea about the future than he did. So he became very, very angry. So angry, in fact, that he commanded that they were all to be killed and their houses turned into a dung heap. Not very nice. Included in the, among the wise men, in this group of wise men, was a young Hebrew who wasn't there in the king's palace by the name of Daniel, who'd been taken as a prisoner of war from Jerusalem when the Babylonian armies went over and overthrew the city. He was among the royal class who had been taken back to 
Babylon to be brainwashed in their universities and taught the religion and the culture and the language and the ways of Babylon. And then the plan was to send him or someone like him back to Jerusalem to rule as a proxy for the Babylonians themselves. uh, Daniel determined that while he was in Babylon, he was going to be faithful and true to God. And so when the soldiers, the executioners came for Daniel, was the first he'd heard of it, and he said, oh, what's this all about? When he heard what had happened, he said, listen, please take me to the king. Take you to the king? And so it was that Daniel was taken to the king, and he said to the king, look, give me a little bit of time, and I'll find the information that you need. So that night, he and his friends were down on their knees praying to their God, Jehovah, that Jehovah would give them the answer as to what the king dreamt and what it meant so that their lives could be spared. You know, friends, when we face difficulties in life, the best thing we can do is pray. All too often we wait, don't we, as humans? We wait until we've tried everything humanly possible and then when we come to the end of our tether, in desperation we get on our knees and say, now help us, Lord. Daniel prayed regularly. And so he took his problem to the Lord and that night as he slept, the Lord gave him, you remember, the answer. And so the next morning... He was in the king's palace. He was telling the king what he had dreamt. Listen to what the Bible says. Daniel comes in before the king and he says to the king, no wise man, astrologer, magician or wizard can tell the king such things. You are asking the most unreasonable things. The wise men are right in what they say. No one on earth can tell you what you want to know, king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has told you in your dream what will happen when? In the future. He was a king who was worried about his kingdom. He was looking at his heirs. He was looking at the size of his kingdom. He was wondering how it could be maintained. He wanted his kingdom to last forever. He was concerned about the future of his kingdom. And as he went to bed with those thoughts in his head, God gave him a dream that revealed the future. So you were worried about the future and you were told in your dream what will happen in the future. And then he goes on and he says, and as you were lying there, O king, your mind turned when? To things to come. You were worried about the future and the revealer of mysteries, that is my God, Jehovah, he showed you what is going to happen, what the future holds in store. You looked, O king. And because the light was so bright, you couldn't read what was on the, on the screen. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue. Enormous. <laughs> Dazzling statue. This statue, he says, was awesome in appearance. So friends, notice what is happening here. Now Daniel is telling the king what he dreamed. Telling him all about his dream. He says, as you were lying there asleep in bed and worried about the future, God showed you a massive statue, all right? 
And then he begins to describe it. He said, the head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. The legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. That's what you saw. And he says, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay. And what did it do? Smashed them. And there's more. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken in pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge what? A huge mountain. And filled the whole earth. There's the dream king. And friends, you and I know who have studied this prediction, this prophecy, we know that it was fulfilled in every detail because it went on to tell us that as he was watching, he saw this great statue, the head of gold symbolized Babylon, the empire of Babylon, this kingdom of gold that ruled the earth with Nebuchadnezzar at its head. But after that kingdom was to come another, symbolized by the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire, followed by the Roman Empire. These are the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And they increased in strength and in power and in extent. But he said there wouldn't be a fifth empire. It would become divided. The divided nations of modern Europe. And he said, King, as you were watching, remember, a rock cut out without human hands came and it struck that statue on its feet and just pulverized it to dust. He said, when we get down to that time that we know as this period of modern Europe, During this period of history, we will have the climax of history when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, symbolized by this rock that will will morph into a mountain that will fill the entire earth. Daniel will say, Nebuchadnezzar, there is a power, there is a God, Jehovah God, who is in control of what is happening on planet earth. And the king said, Daniel, that's exactly what I dreamed. Not only do you know what I dreamed, but you know what it means. You know what the king did? He fell on his face. He fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered and said, Truly, Daniel, your God, this great Jehovah God, who can tell the future, who knows what's going on in my head, this God is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords, Lord of kings, and the revealer of secrets. He was amazed. He recognized the God of heaven, the mountain, the kingdom that is going to fill the earth. He was amazed. He looked over his kingdom 
This kingdom that he'd built virtually with his own hands. This kingdom that he had established. This golden kingdom that ruled the world. And as he looked over that kingdom, as he looked over that magnificent city of Babylon, he began to think, hey, I don't like this idea of a mountain taking over. I want this kingdom to last forever. No way! No way am I going to relinquish my position, my power. I'm going to fight that mountain. My kingdom will last forever. And so, instead of finding comfort in the fact that God is in control of human history, Nebuchadnezzar found it disturbing because he wanted his world, his kingdom to last forever. He wanted his kingdom to go on and on and on. He didn't like the idea of this mountain, God's kingdom ruling the world. And so my friends, one chapter further on, one chapter after the dream, we find Nebuchadnezzar building his own statue in defiance of God, in defiance of the mountain. He builds a statue in defiance of God's prediction. Jehovah, you will not interfere with my world and my kingdom. I'm going to fight the mountain. So he built his statue. How many metals did that statue have? How many metals did the original one have in the dream? Four statues, four, four metals in that statue. Remember the gold, the silver, the bronze and the iron? So what does he do? Instead of four different metals, his statue was made all of what metal? What did the head of gold symbolize in the original statue? Babylon, he was saying, my kingdom's going to last forever. Forget about another kingdom taking my place. Forget about that mountain eventually filling the world. My kingdom will last forever. I challenge the God of heaven. I challenge the mountain. The Bible says Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. That's about 30 meters. Try to get a... Get an idea of how big this statue was. This guy meant business. He was the most powerful man on the planet. And notice what he's doing. He is defying God. And he does it in a big way. It's not just something he says quietly behind his hand or to his immediate family. He wants the world to know he's the king. No God in heaven. So he builds this statue 30 meters high. It's with six cubits, about three meters wide. He set it up on the plain, in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. You see, friends, this statue of gold was Nebuchadnezzar's public declaration that nobody could interfere with his greatness. He was shaking his fist at God. He was shaking his fist at the mountain. And then notice what he did next. 
As if that's not enough. Next. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Notice what he's doing. He brings in all the politicians from around the empire, from around the then known world, all the leaders, every last one of them, all the government officials were invited from across the empire. They were invited with a heavy hand. They were ordered to show up and they were required to participate in a brand new one world religion. Friends, the golden statue was Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to unite the whole world in the spirit of Babylon. A one world government that forces a particular brand of religion on the inhabitants of the empire in direct defiance to Jehovah God. Notice what happens. Then the, a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations and languages. They're all there. That at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre and psaltery, in the symphony with all kinds of music, notice what everybody had to do. Now friends, notice what's going on in this guy's head. He is challenging God. And he wants everybody to participate in his challenge. Alright? So, when the music blares out, you shall fall down and worship what? The image, the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so, friends, in an attempt to defy God, Nebuchadnezzar tries to establish a world religion, a universal world religion, and he forces people to worship what? He forces them to worship an image instead of God. I want you to notice what he does. Because, friends, there's something very important taking place here. Now, you might say, what are you going on about this for? What, what's, the, what's the point of all of this? Friends, you're going to see in a minute. I want you to notice the man's strategy. Nebuchadnezzar mixes truth with error. He takes the, the Bible, the prophetic statue of Daniel 2, do you notice? He uses a statue just like the one in the Bible, but he twists it. Do you notice? He twists it to mean something entirely different. Do you notice what's happening here? So he takes the truth, he twists it so that it means something very different to what God intended. Now my friends, this is still the outstanding characteristic of every false religion. They all mix truth with error. Every one of them. Every one of them. Friends, the most dangerous deception in the world is not an outright lie. 
It's the mingling of truth with error so that the lie becomes more acceptable. The most dangerous deceptions are the ones that look almost like the truth. Here is a great statue. Its head was of gold, just like the one in the Bible. But then a change takes place. Friends, false religion. Just notice the points here. We have false religion based on idol worship. Then we have a universal political decree worldwide in nature that forces people to worship falsely. To worship in a way contrary to what the Bible teaches, to what God says. And then notice that there's a death penalty for those who disobey. What does all this have to do with us? Simply this, my friends. Remember that the, book of, the books of Daniel and Revelation are the two great prophetic books of the Bible. One in what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures and the other in the Greek Scriptures or what we call the New Testament. They are sister books. They are related. Revelation builds on Daniel. And Revelation chapter 13 tells us that a situation similar to that back there in Babylon will arise just before Jesus comes. And my friends, that's why this is relevant to you and me today. What we hear about and read about back there in Babylon is going to be repeated but on a grander scale in the days in which you and I live. So what are those key points? We'll have a false religion based on idol worship. There'll be a universal political decree to enforce false worship. And there will be a death penalty issued against those who disobey that decree. And my friends, you and I are going to face this situation. Remember this. The great controversy, this battle between good and evil, this conflict between God and Satan is over worship. That's what lies at the very heart of the great conflict between God and Satan. It's worship. It's worship. You think of the first conflict recorded on planet Earth. Who was it between? Cain and Abel. It was a battle over how to worship, remember? Now we come down to the plain of Jura and it's a battle over who to worship. The image or God. And friends, the final conflict will be over when to worship. All over worship. The good news is this. That in the end time, 
God will have a people who will be faithful and true to him. A people who will not compromise. A people who will not bow their knee to false religion. That's why it says in Revelation, the 14th chapter and verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep what? The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You see, friends, the first four commandments, if you look at them, all deal with our relationship to God. And that's the wonderful thing about the Bible. Christianity is a religion that deals with everyday issues. It deals with us where we are. It's relevant to our everyday lives. And so the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God, the vertical. The second table deal with our relationship on the horizontal with our fellow human beings. But those first four commandments all deal with worship. These very issues. Who to worship? Isn't that the first and second commandments? How to worship, when to worship... That's what the first four commandments are all about. And God tells us that at the time of this climax of the great controversy, when there's a worldwide decree to worship idols, false worship, when there is a death decree given to those who fail to obey, God says, my people will remain faithful because they have a relationship with me with Jesus Christ as their Saviour. And because they are my people, because they love me, and they are committed and dedicated to me, the death decree will not impact on them. They will remain faithful. They will keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Do you remember what happened back there on the plains of of Jura? This great king the most powerful man in the universe. He builds this golden statue. He gets the fanciest orchestra that this world has ever seen. And when the music plays, everybody, everybody is to bow down and everybody does bow down. Except three young men. Three young men refused in the face of certain death. Everybody bows down. The king stands up and he looks over that vast multitude. All the politicians are there. Everybody that counts in the empire is there. And they all bow down. And the king looks out over the multitude and everybody's kneeling except three. And he thinks that, hey man, they didn't understand the, the, the command. They speak another language. They come from Jerusalem. So he calls them up and he said, listen guys, perhaps you didn't understand. I'm going to give you another chance. When that music blares out, you fall down and you better fall down fast. You know what happens? They come before the king. The king's furious. Remember? He gets really mad. And he says to his servants, anybody who doesn't obey, remember we said we're going to throw them into the furnace. Okay, I want you to 
I want you to superheat that furnace. I want you to make it so hot. So hot. I love what the young man said to the, to the king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It doesn't matter how hot the furnace is. Look, we respect you. But we serve the God in heaven. We serve the one who is, whose kingdom is going to fill this earth. You may shake your fist at the mountain, but he is our God. And we worship that Jehovah. Now, we don't know what his plans are for us, but it doesn't matter what happens, we're not bowing down to that statue. We are going to remain faithful and true. Can you imagine what was going on? He was getting angrier. He was getting more heated. He was getting hot under the collar. Probably had to take his tie off. He was mad. Heat that furnace up seven times more. Do you remember what happened? You know, that fire was so hot that the people who had to get near it, unfortunately for them, to throw the Hebrews in, dropped dead. The heat was so intense. And the king was keen to see them barbecued. He wanted to see them go up in smoke. And so he watched intently into that furnace. He watched so carefully because he wanted everybody to know what happens to those who disobey his command. Do you remember what happened? As he was looking. He was amazed. I see form. How many did he throw in? Three. And he looks, and as he looks, he sees four. I see four men walking loose in the midst of the fire. And who on earth is that fourth one? None of them have any hurt. And the form of the fourth is like who? The Son of God. You see, my friends, this is the reality. You and I are part of the most amazing conflict, the great controversy that is taking place between God and Satan. You and I are not spectators. We are participants. And there's a battle going on over your heart and mind, over your soul this very day. And as Nebuchadnezzar looks, he says, Hold on, I see four in there. Now, how many did you throw in there? They're not being hurt. What sort of fuel did you use on that fire? The fourth looks like the Son of God. Listen, my friend. When you go through the furnaces of life, the fires of trouble and conflict, Jesus stands there with you. He's there with you when you go through the, the fiery temptations of life. Listen, friends, God today is looking for those who will stand true for Him. And you know what? He believes that you are one of those who are going to stand true for Him. Do you know that? He's called you, my friend. He's called you. He knows you by name. He walks with you day by day. And he will walk with you through the fire. He promises protection. 
to those who stand true and will not accept the counterfeit. Today, God is looking for those who will stand true for him. Those who will not accept the counterfeit. Those who will not compromise. And my friend, he's counting on you. He's counting on you. You are one of his. You are his modern day Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You are one of those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here are the saints, he says. Here are my people. When the Nebuchadnezzars of the world scoff and shake their fist at the mountain, you know what God's response is? Look at my people. Look at them down there in Sydney in Ultimo. There they are. They belong to me. You can shake your fist, you can light your fire, you can burn your furnace. Look at my people. Look at my people. Oh, my friend, if you have not accepted Jesus as your Saviour, if you've been shaking your fist at the mountain today, God's speaking to your heart. He's asking you to take a stand, to make a decision that come what may, you are going to be true to him. He's counting on you. And it is my prayer that each one of us here will be found true and faithful and will be found ready and waiting to meet Jesus when he comes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Too many of us have been shaking our fist at the mountain for too long. Lord, you've called us to be true and faithful. You've called us to be your people. You've called us to be numbered amongst those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. O Lord, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, may we have the courage of our convictions. May we have such a relationship with Jesus as our Saviour that nothing will cause us to compromise. Bless each one here today, Lord. You know us. You know us. You know the challenges we are facing. You know us by name. You know all about us. Father, you know the temptations that we are facing right now. Oh, Father, give us the victory like you gave Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. May we be true to you. And when Jesus comes... May we walk with him. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This message was made available by Fountain in the City. For more resources like this, visit Fountain in the City dot com dot au
destroy everything that's holy and control what preachers say. But God still has a few good men who won't bend, won't bow, won't burn, who will fight to the end to defend their faith till the day that the whole This generation for Christ sang, We Will Stand Our Ground. Coming up next, the Hamilton family will sing, In God We Trust, In God Alone. We pray for peace and plead for grace. We bow our knees in humbleness. We cry to God to heal our lives. 
our sins and cleanse our hands in Enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Ellen White's work in Australia and New Zealand was largely a pioneering work. Essen Haskell and his team had arrived several years earlier, but much of the work was yet to be done. Here in this new country, they would go into unentered fields, 
opened schools, churches, sanitariums and publishing houses. The membership was small, but the vision was big. Ellen White had mentioned Australia as early as 1874 when she wrote, the message will go in power to Oregon, to Europe, to Australia. At the age of 64, 17 years later, she would arrive here in Australia. The original team had originally docked in Sydney, but they would end up settling here in Melbourne, and this city is really the birthplace of Adventism in Australia. This was also where Ellen White first settled when she came. In mid-1892, she sent a message to the conference president, A.G. Daniels, that a school needed to be started for the education of the youth. This message was both welcomed and also troubling. How could a membership so small and poor in worldly goods accomplish this? They started the Australasian Bible School in two rented houses on St. George's Terrace on St. Kilda's Road. In their first term, they had between 25 and 50 students. Later on, the school would grow and a third house would be added. Later on, the school would move north to Kurumbong, but its roots lie here. Early on, the publishing work was started and a building on the corner of Ray and Scotchmer served as both accommodation and publishing house. The first copy of the Bible, Echo and Signs of the Time was published in January of 1886. Later on, they would purchase a property here on Best Street for $1,400 and a three-story building was erected. The publishing house would stay here until it would move in 1905 to Warburton, where it remains to this day. Our early pioneers sought to use the best means of communication to share the message and this was integral to the strategy of the church as it planted in new areas. Here in the Edinburgh Gardens they also held the first tent meetings that would later on lead to the first Adventist church in the Southern Hemisphere, the North Fitzroy Seventh-day Adventist Church. Another work that started early on was a health food company. This was known as Sanitarium Health Foods and started in 1898 on Clark Street in Northcote, Melbourne. Ellen White strongly encouraged this, as well as the later move of the company from Melbourne to Avondale so that the college students could work there. Today, Sanitarium Foods is one of the largest health food companies in the world and is widely recognized throughout Australia for its wide range of products, in particular, its flagship product, Wheat Bix. The financial support given by Sanitarium to the work of the church is in line with the instruction Ellen White gave about the health food work, that it is God's gift to his people and the profits are to be used for the good of suffering humanity everywhere. This is perhaps the best illustration of this close working relationship anywhere in the world. And so the work of the church started in a comprehensive fashion. Evangelism, 
church planting, education, a health food company, a publishing house, and a sanitarium. There were many dimensions to the church in its early days, despite only having a few members. They worked hard and sought to follow the counsel that God had given them, even though they only had a little bit of funds. Sometimes today, I think we are too constrained by our circumstances. And if the pioneers manifested the same hesitancy that we often have, I wonder if the work would ever have got going. God is looking for people today who will step out in faith, who will follow the counsel that he has given and seek to accomplish great things in these times in which we're living. more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. Hello, I'm Tim Standish from the Geoscience Research Institute. Behind me is a Jurassic limestone quarry in Solnhofen, Bavaria, famous for its fossils. My colleagues and I are here studying Archaeopteryx, possibly the most famous Solnhofen fossil. Imagine Charles Darwin's excitement over Archaeopteryx, a bird with teeth in its mouth, and a dinosaur-like tail. Was it a missing link between dinosaurs and birds? Possible missing links are still big news, which emphasizes their rarity when Darwinism predicts them everywhere. As is common with news-making missing links, after further study, most experts reject Archaeopteryx as a missing link. Abundant other bird fossils, including at least one modern bird, are found in Jurassic rocks or in overlying Cretaceous rocks. Patterns of fossil appearance and disappearance are difficult to understand. As scientists, it's tempting to wish we had all the answers, but the creation is far more interesting than that. We don't know exactly why diverse fossil birds appear in a pattern essentially the opposite of Darwinism's predictions. Sometimes faith liberates us to admit we don't know everything, but that there is sufficient evidence to believe the biblical record of history over the alternatives. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.